This is a recording of a Bible study given at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title, The Pre-Roma. The special subject this evening is devoted to the words, fullness of time, which we find in Galatians 4. Those of you who are listening to this recording, you may care to join us as we read a portion of scripture. If so, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. These two chapters in Hebrews 4 and 5 contain a great variety of teaching which has nothing whatever to do particularly with our subject this evening. But there is an insistence on time a certain day in chapter 4. It's repeated again in chapter 5. This day have I begotten thee. But particularly, as we come to the close of the chapter, the apostle writing to them said, for the time ye ought to be teachers, but you're still babes instead of having grown. So there's a, an element of time that is connected with growth, with witness. In fact, we cannot eliminate time from any human experience. Time and place are the two inseparables so long as we are in this life. What it's going to be like in the next I don't know. But it's not conceivable that any experience can ever be passed through by you or me which didn't happen sometime, somewhere. It may happen somehow and that can alter, but not sometime and somewhere. Those two must meet together. And if you could pinpoint the scriptures accurately with regard to time and place, you'd have all that dispensational truth could give you. That's all it amounts to. But don't go around and say, oh, I see, that's easy, because that's like when I turn around and someone sees me sketching, I say, oh, all you've got to do is to put the right colour on the right place and say, is that all? I'll go home and do it. See, well, they find there's a bit more to it. But strictly speaking, time and place. I always see the wonder of Shakespeare's use of language when he said, when time nor place did then adhere. You would make both time and place adhering. Well now, we're going to consider this evening another phase of this question of the fullness. And unless it's a bit written, we may not have thought that time entered into the question of fullness. But it does in two places. Would you like to look at the two places? We're only going to look at one. Uh, but there are two, chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of the time was come. And the other passage is Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. In our version, we have time and times. And that's the only indication that there is any difference in the two words used. Strictly speaking, the word in Galatians 4 is chronos, which means duration or length of time. And the word in Ephesians is kairos, which means suitable time or season. The difference between chronos and kairos is that it's Roughly half past six now. That's Kronos. 
And it's supposed to be, as far as I understand, summer. But six months' time it will be half past six, chronos. But the season will have changed. It will be winter. But we won't go into that because that's waiting for us presently when we deal with Ephesians 1. Galatians 4 is before us. Before we go into Galatians 4, let's pause for a moment to see a little bit more this insistence upon the dominion of time. It enters into practical things too. It enters into the character of the purpose of the ages too. It enters into our relationship with it. You, you know what I'm thinking of? That passage in Habakkuk, chapter 2. I'll just turn to it and read a few verses of chapter 2. You notice I said I'll turn to it, so that lets anybody out who's not able to just put their finger on the map. Habakkuk 2. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. Now the trouble with this man was, he'd been surrounded by wickedness, he continually prayed, and there seemed to be no answer and no intervention. He was worried over it. And the Lord answered me, and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. That's the first thing God says. All your prayers, Habakkuk, will never turn that hand back or forward on God's clock. That's impossible. The vision is yet for an appointed time. That's the first thing. The second is, at the end it shall speak. So the silence will be broken when the appointed time is reached. Shall speak and not lie. And I suppose that involves the idea of not cause any sorrow, any dissatisfaction, any disappointment. It will be just exactly the right thing, although for the moment you may not think so. Though it tarry, now that's from the human point of view, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry, that's from God's point of view. It seems a tremendous long time to wait. That's only because you're human. So you see, that's an important feature, isn't it? Now this word appointed time meets us right in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. The sun, the moon, and the stars are the set for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Seasons, appointed times. There was that crisis in the life of Abraham and Sarah, when God said, At the set time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And then they waited until Ishmael was born instead. And then it says, At the time appointed, just as God said, so it will take place. But what a test for faith. So there is in the purpose of the ages that strong element. This word appointed time is translated feasts, not because there's anything to eat or drink, but the feasts of Israel's calendar were prophetic. They showed the movement of the purpose of God, and they all have their appointed place. Passover must come before Pentecost. You'll get no outpouring of the Spirit of God on an unredeemed people. Passover first, Pentecost second, and so on. And then you think of Christ himself, 
when he came. He was under this obligation too. His mother looked at him after looking at him for years, watching that child grow to a lad, from a lad to a man, knowing what the angel had said, knowing all the thoughts that were in her heart and mind that she kept to herself. She couldn't stop herself one day, she said. They have no wine. And he interpreted what was in her heart. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It sounds like a rebuke, doesn't it? But it was gently done. But he said, I do not put out a hand to prove my messiahship until he who sent me gives me the word. That's absolute service, isn't it? He took upon him the form of a slave. And because he was absolutely the only slave that ever obeyed implicitly, people turned round and threw it in his face and called him names. But we'll leave that. That was for our sakes. And then you remember they met him. And they couldn't lay a hand upon him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. So he influenced them too. They could not, just as he could not, transgress that moment. His hour was not yet come. And then when at last, the Greeks came inquiring, saying, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Jesus knowing that his hour was come. He saw an indication that that was a mark that the moment had arrived, how we may not be able to put two and two together. The hour is come. And then if you want to find a passage which challenges you, if you think to yourself, well, you can't imagine that God is tied down to days or hours or minutes or like that. It's such a general statement. Let me read this one from Revelation chapter 9. And the four angels were loosed, this is verse 15, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year. Now either those words mean what they say or they're just a piece of nonsense. So we're going to introduce nonsense into a tragic book like the book of the Revelation. An hour, a day, a month and a year. That's, a, that's as much as to say that explicit moment for now that moment has come. What if it could be said about judgment that was going to fall upon the earth? It could be said about other things. And then you know, when Moses was speaking to God, when he was sent to Egypt, and he said, they're sure to ask me, well, what is thy name? What shall I tell them? Well, first of all, the Lord reveals himself in language which baffles our interpretation. And then he goes on to explain. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is my name for the age. And this is my memorial unto all generations. That's the way he expounded and explained the name Jehovah. For the name Jehovah is made up of parts of the verb to become. He who was and is and is to come. And you come back to our epistle to the Hebrews. And that element of time under the control of the Lord is the saving element in the Hebrews. Because you remember in the first chapter he says his hands made the heavens and the earth and they shall pass away. They shall pass away. But thou remainest. And then we see the priesthood passing away a failure. We see all the sacrifices never touching the conscience and just being set aside 
as shadows. And we come to the last chapter. And he's, he's still there. Jesus Christ. The same. Yesterday. And today. And forever. That's the Lord of time. That's Exodus. This is my name throughout the ages and generations. This is my memorial for all time. He's the one. He not only made the visible and tangible earth, but by him the ages were constructed and put together. So, that's perhaps, you say, what an unnecessary introduction to this subject. Well, I hope not. Sometimes it does us good to have our thoughts stimulated a little bit along unfamiliar paths. Time. Well, should we we now come back to Galatians 4? Because now you'll say to yourself, I wonder what time has got to do with the epistle to the Galatians and its teaching. (laughs) Well, that's a legitimate question. And if I hadn't given you this little preparation, it wouldn't have been so obvious. But perhaps it will be now. Galatians 4. We start reading Galatians 4, although it's a part of a longer argument. Now I say, and I think the Apostle really means, now what I am saying is this. See, he's been talking to them about things they understood, the making of a will in Galatia, the appointing of the heir, giving him the firstborn's position, and then arguing that that could never be undone. The coming of the law, 430 years afterwards, could never disannul. You see, 400 years more time coming in to the argument. And then finally, he picks up the story and uses another well-known figure to them, because you've you read perhaps ancient history, you know that the uh, in the Roman, great Roman families, there was the uh, pedagogue who had charge of the growing boy and the young man, until it, the time came when he put on his Roman toga and became full-grown adult. Then the pedagogue withdrew. His work was done. Well, all this is going to lead up to this fullness of time, so let's come step by step. Now I say that the heir is talking about someone who is not really a child, but an heir. One of the, one of the things which is characteristic of our calling is that the scripture says, if a son, then an heir. Some of us are sons and some of us are daughters and what the inheritance is going to be, well, we don't know nothing at all, very little in this life. But in this family of God, every son is an heir. Now he says, I'm talking about that heir. As long as he is a child, so he's dealing with time, as long as that heir is a child, an infant, a minor, he differs from when that same person is an adult and full grown. Well, of course, that's natural. But that's his argument, so let him pursue it. The heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. So it looks as though he's wanting us to realise there's a tremendous difference from being a child parallel with a servant and a son who's completely released from all their limitations. But we won't anticipate 
will go on. Though he be Lord of all, but he's under tutors and governors. Until the time appointed of the Father. So you see, the first reference to time in Galatians 4 is not the word fullness of time, but it's the time appointed of the Father. Now this is referring to the ordinary natural father of some child that's being spoken about. This is not God the Father. This is any father at that time puts down in his will the time when that child should enter its its majority and assume responsibility and enjoy its inheritance. And if the father is wise, he puts it round about when the child comes of age. But it's the time appointed by the father that is the moment of the transition. So first of all, verses 1 and 2 are not referring, first of all, to a Christian. It's simply referring to any ordinary family as a figure of speech. Now he passes from that by the words, even so we. He hasn't been saying about us until he says, well now, let's transfer this figure to ourselves. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now he's talking, it's a Hebrew, because by race, the Apostle Paul was a Hebrew, who is talking to Galatians who were idolaters and pagans. And yet he says we. Does he refer to himself? Does he include them? Yes. Glance a little bit further down the chapter. Verse 8. How be it then? When ye knew not God. He's now saying ye, not we. He's now talking only to these Galatians who once were idolaters. How be it then? When ye knew not God. Ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Now come back again. Verse 3, even so we, when we, but Paul, were you ever in bondage to weak and beggarly elements? You never worshipped idols, did you? No, he said. And he said, these Galatians haven't turned back to idols. Oh, but you're accusing them of doing so. No, he says, I'm only accusing them of doing so in the, in, a, in the same spirit. He says, look, I was once under elements, rules, regulations, that were a tremendous yoke of bondage which we couldn't endure, but they were given by God. I was under the law of Moses, and I was being treated like a child. For the bulk of the law of Moses, when it first is read, is just a long list of prohibitions. Thou shalt not. Just negatives. Telling you, and you can hear it still to this very day. Anybody who's had to bring up a little child knows full well they get sick and tired themselves of saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. That's one of the elements of this world. You can't avoid it. So said Paul, I was under the elements of the, of the world, law of Moses. You were under the elements of the world, pagan teaching. Now he said, this is what's staggering me. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You've been given the status of a son. And you've gone back. But they said, we haven't gone back. We are not idolaters anymore. But he says, you've gone back to what? 
He observed days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you. That's the elements of the world. Certainly you're not bowing down to images again. But you've turned your back on their absolute acceptance in Christ. And whether you go that way, or whether you go that way and turn your back on him, is very little difference in the long run. So you see his point. He's trying to let them see that there comes a moment in God's plan when this element of bondage, servitude, legalism, ceremonial, whatever it may be, comes to a stop. And when that time comes, to perpetuate it is an evil. Even though God gave the law, chapter 5, verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And yet that law was holy and just and good and given by God. But it was one of the elements, the ABC, that which had to do with childhood and not to do with the grown-up. Somebody was speaking to me only this week. I forget who it was now. I hope he's not here this evening. If he is, I'll try to be as truthful as possible with a bad memory. But the same principle was there. Wish we had it more like all put down, you know, what to, we're to do, how we're to go, and how we're to think. And I said, I know, you want a book that says, Thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not go to the cinema. I said, that's all putting yourself back into bondage as a child. God's given you something absolutely better than that. He's given you the spirit of his son. He's given you the example of his son. And he says to you, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And instead of giving you a long list of things, what you've got to do and what you haven't got to do, he says, now I'm treating you as grown up. And you turn around and say, I wish I had a factory act on my door and a long list of prohibitions, I know where I was. Oh, I say, you're going back to the elements again then. You're going back to bondage. You're turning your back on the fact that you're free and you're a child. Oh, you say, I make so many mistakes. Far better to make many mistakes than put yourself back into bondage when you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He knows you'll make mistakes. Any person who's ever set a slave free knows full well he'll go haywire, won't he? For a bit. But are you going to bring him back and make a slave of him then? No. Just be patient with him. Teach him. Love him. Show him. And at long last, by the mercy of God, he'll stand where God intends he should stand. So he says, even so we, so he includes himself, rightly so. I was under the, the, the bondage of elements in the law of Moses, you were under the bondage of the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, well now you see we've already been prepared to know that however much there may be a crying need, you can never alter God's program. Have a cup. Prayed. Prayed earnestly. But he was told to wait. And this world waited 4,000 years. You could, hardly, you could hardly believe that God could wait 4,000 years with a world steeped in sin and misery and suffering and horror and never break the silence. But he does. He waits. 
He's not human like you and I. We spoil so many things because we interfere. See, the naturalist will warn you of the temptation to help a butterfly out of the chrysalis. If you do, that butterfly is doomed. That struggle is a part of its very life and its very beauty. And so with other things. The moment you put out your hand to save the ark of God, you're going to cause trouble. Like Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have an Ishmael to worry you for the rest of your days. And so he says, when the fullness of the time was cut. If you read Roman history, some of the Roman historians, although they were a bad lot themselves and confessed it, or didn't know they were a bad lot for the things they'd said about themselves, yet they give evidence that they began to feel well, if things go on much further, I don't know, as the world will rise above it. They deplore the vice, the evils. You get a glimpse of it in Romans, the first chapter. You get a glimpse of it in the character of the church at Corinth. Even though they were Christians and called saints, they were practicing some things which the apostle says he couldn't even talk about it. You, you've heard, I suppose, the expression, a sink of iniquity. Well, that was actually the title given to Corinth by one of the Roman historians. And they began to, to express hopes that there was a deliverer coming. Whether they got glimpses of it from casual reference to the Hebrew Scriptures or whether it was just in the minds of men, it's not possible for me to say, for I'm no historian. But it was so. And we can believe that, however it's difficult to explain, that it was necessary for all that 4,000 years to go by, with its varying experiences, its various forms of judgment, its various forms of government, either in Eden, or patriarchal, or under the law, or under kings. There was a reason for all this movement and testing. And then at last, and then at last, the time came. And you could see that it was known of God. Because John the Baptist was first of all brought into being as a forerunner. And then the time came. And the place came together. The time, fullness of time, the place, a little obscure village called Bethlehem. And then a line was drawn across the map, as it were. A line across the calendar. And he said, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. Oh, how many times Christ, the son of God, is just the answer. That was God's answer to all the cry that was going up. God sent forth his son. Now why does he say made of a woman, made under the law? Why? Because he says I'm talking about you Gentiles and I'm talking about myself who by nature and race am a Jew. Made of a woman would send you back eventually to Genesis chapter 3. And when you get to Genesis chapter 3 there's neither Jew nor Greek there. It's just man. 
I always remember one man when I lived in the country. He knew I was a believer in Christ. And in order to have a dig at me, he said about that old Jew who started Market Garden in the Bible. So I had to remind him that Adam wasn't an old Jew anyhow. But that's what they say these people. No, when he says born of a woman, it takes her back to the primitive prophecy of Scripture. I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. That woman. And then he says, made under the law. Because you see, Israel had a double difficulty. They, like the rest of Adam's seed, needed a deliverer. But they had been taken into covenant relationship with God and they were under a law. And what has the apostle said to them in chapter 3? Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Oh, there's something more then for them. Yes. You know, I've never been redeemed from the curse of the law of Moses for obvious reason. I was never under it. But if I'd been born as one of the tribes of Israel, I should have needed to be redeemed not only from sin so far as it belongs to human nature. I needed to be delivered from the curse of a broken agreement. A covenant, a law. So in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So you see the two come together in verse 4. Made of a woman covers all mankind, made under the law, all that the Jew needed. And then the very next word is the word redeem. Verse 5, to redeem. And that is exactly the same word as the word in verse 13. Christ hath redeemed. And you say, well, obviously, if he's redeemed, it would be the same word. But not obviously, friends. There's another word redeemed, which we have in the other epistles. There's another word. This word is a very peculiar word and fits its context exactly as you might expect. We've had it all before. I know we must have it again. The original word is ex. Agorazo. Ex, meaning out of. Agora, the marketplace. And it became a word with a restricted meaning to go into a marketplace and not buy anything. To go into a marketplace, put down the money that was necessary to set a slave free. That's the meaning. That's what was done. So he has put down the ransom to set the Israelite free who was in bondage to the law, and he put down the ransom to set the poor, ignorant, pagan free, who was in the bondage of darkness and death. To the double side. Ex agorazo. The word does come in Ephesians, when it says, redeeming the time. But that's not Christ redeeming anything, that's you and me redeeming something. Ex agorazo. And in that position, uh, one of the translations, which is very suggestive, is forestalling the time. Now, forestalling goes back in its origin to the marketplace with all its stalls and a person so keen for a bargain that he gets there very early and waits for them to open. Have you ever heard about people who take camp chairs and thermoflasks and blankets and they sit all night in the doorway of one of the great stores because they've got their eye on a curtain or a frock or a coat. That's forestalling. That's redeeming the time. That's looking out for a bargain. Oh, goodness me, friends, wouldn't it be fine if we did a bit of that? For the Lord's sake. 
redeeming the time, forestalling, getting a bargain for him. So here's a word that means going into the marketplace, setting a slave free in this context. So he says in chapter 4, verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, to set them free, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now here we're on that subject which we've had so many, many times. I dare not go into it now because our time I don't think would permit. But I will remind you, at least, that this word adoption is used by the Apostle Paul in three different contexts. Perhaps you would like to just see them for yourself. So we go back to Romans, the ninth chapter, and this is what we discover. That it was a peculiar privilege of the people of Israel. He speaks in verse 3 of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And if you don't know who they are, he says, who are Israelites. So there's no doubt that the apostle was speaking to those who were literally his brethren according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And the first thing he mentions as being their peculiar prerogative is to whom pertaineth the adoption. Then he goes on, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And then a very special, peculiar privilege of Israel, of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Concerning the flesh, but who is over all? God, bless him forever, from the other angle. But that was a very peculiar privilege, and the first, the adoption. Well, here we have, the adoption. And we have it again in Romans the 8th chapter, if you turn back just once. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage. You see this element of bondage all the time, again a fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now you come back to Galatians 4. And because ye are sons, verse 6, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're on the same ground, aren't we? What you want to know is that this is a, a word chosen with purpose. Abba, Father. Ab means father. Abba was peculiar. It was restricted by the rabbinical laws to a person who was free. No slave was ever permitted to use the word Abba. Well, the apostle knew that. We've been brought up in these traditions. And he says, you see, we've received this position. Adoption. Here's the adoption. Well, then in Ephesians chapter 1, we've got the other one, verses 3, 4 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption. Well, there are three different companies who have this peculiar privilege of being the adopted. Now it doesn't mean modern adoption. 
taking poor, some poor little waif or stray into your family and bringing it up? No. It was a legal adoption. It was appointing one of your legitimate family to be your heir. You might choose your eldest son. You might choose your youngest son. You could choose a nephew if you liked in those days. But it was appointing someone to be heir. It was a great privilege. So here we have God's firstborn. Now who were God's firstborn upon earth? Exodus will tell you. When Moses went into the presence of Pharaoh to demand Israel, he said, let my firstborn go. And if you don't let my firstborn go, I should have to touch your firstborn, Pharaoh. So all the plagues that fell after that were mercy, mingled with judgment, to save Pharaoh and his people from losing their firstborn at the mercy of God in his judgment. But at last it came. So Israel were the firstborn, although there were other nations far more ancient, of course, than Israel. Then we have in Galatians, a new company. Look at chapter 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. That is to say, now in Christ. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. So he's got another company here. Not Israel. It says so. There's neither Jew nor Greek. And you know another thing which he had to remind his readers in Romans that Abraham wasn't a Jew. Well, yes, I can understand Adam not being a Jew, but surely Abraham, no. Abraham wasn't a Jew. He never saw a Jew. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel and he became the father of the twelve tribes. So there could be those who were children of Abraham who were not Jews. That was a startling thing to the Jewish people. They didn't think that. But here it is. Well, when you come to Ephesians 1, are there any Jews there? Oh, no. They're gone. They're out of it for the time being. And if you don't believe it, you read chapter 2 and the ones to whom he speaks, he says, you know that you were Gentiles in the flesh. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, and yet you've got the adoption. Well, you can't have the adoption of Israel if you're an alien at the self-same time. So here you've got three families. And in, in that family, there's a firstborn. Now, the firstborn on earth has all the nations of the earth sub, uh, beneath them, as it were, their servants, as it says they will be. And in the second one, which is in the New Jerusalem, for Galatians chapter 4 directs you to Jerusalem, which is above, verse 26. They have angels beneath them. And in the third one, which takes you to the right hand of God, where Christ sits. No angels there. But they have principalities and powers beneath them. So there's a very definite, glorious connection with position and honour in being adopted. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now I'm talking about you as well, said Paul, and because ye are sons, we've been delivered, you have been delivered, and now we stand in this new calling. And because ye are sons, 
God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying that precious word, Abba, Father. The only one who uses it outside of Paul's epistles is the record of Christ in the garden against Emily. He said it. He said it. These say it. No others permit it. Then he sums it up. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now before we go further into verses 8, 9, 10 and 11, I'd like to turn back just to chapter 1. I haven't been able to fix up a separate chart this evening of Galatians, although I have it. It seemed rather cumbersome. But if you will look at Galatians 1, verse 15, you'll see these words. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, and you being so wonderfully taught and instructed, you would immediately say, Oh, I see, I see. Here's the start of the structure. We who are Jews by nature. Balancing chapter 4, verse 8. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Doesn't occur anywhere else. By nature. Then, an argument is started. Paul says to, to Peter, verse 18. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If I build again. Look at chapter 4. Verse 9. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, the things which have been destroyed? Don't you see? This is a big argument. He starts talking to Peter, and he ends up by talking to the Galatians. And as every possibility he, he intended the Galatians to sit and listen to what he was saying to Peter too. He said, Peter, you know your trouble. You're going back. You stepped out into a liberty. It says that he did eat with the Gentiles. Well, you think that's nothing to do. Oh, it was a great thing for, for Peter to step over that line, that barrier, and sit down at the same table. He did eat with the Gentiles, but then, oh, they called him to give an account of himself. And he withdrew. But he said, you're building again then the things which you destroyed. So that's two things. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. We better be justified by faith without works. So what are you doing, Peter? Then Paul sums it up. He turns from Peter and he says, this is my position, Peter. Verse 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Now he says, in, the, in Galatians 4, You observe days and months and times and years, I'm afraid of you, lest I should have bestowed upon you labour in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Now, left to itself, and just like that, it can mean anything, can it? And if you read commentaries, the commentator expresses his opinion as to what the apostle meant. Be as I am, for I am as you are. But supposing you've got now one, two, three. 
Let me do it this way. By nature, this is the agenda, by nature, build the game, I am against the law. Then we have down here, nature, other gods, uh, turn the game, because I am. You see, I'll repeat myself for the sake of the recording, because that most likely was fogged. We have three words at the beginning, and three words at the end of this analysis. Nature, build a game, and I am. At the other end, we have nature, turn a game, and I am. Well, if the first two balance, well, the, the last one is looking for its mate, isn't it? So he says, I am as you are. But I wouldn't always say that, he said to these Galatians. Not by a long chalk would I. I was a Pharisee. Oh, look at chapter 1 and see what sort of a man he was. Verse 13. For you have heard of my conversation in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. That's the sort of man I was, Galatians. And you would have been included in that persecution had not a change taken place in me. And I profited in the Jews' religion about many mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. And then he says, be as I am. And then he doesn't say, be as I am, because I'm a Pharisee. He says, be as I am, for I'm as you are. In what way would this proud, religious Pharisee say he was like these pagan Galatians? Well, he says, I'm like you because ultimately I had to be redeemed by the self-same Christ, the self-same precious blood. I was in the same awful bondage as you were, although it looked different on the surface. So he says, I could do no more than plead with you. I have been delivered. I have come out from this bondage. And by the mercy of God, he said, I never turn back again. And he urges them in the opening of chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore. Not merely in the liberty, but to it. Wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. So you see, all the way through this epistle, he's appealing to them. And it all is hinging on the fullness of time. When the fullness of time was come, Christ came. And when Christ came, the curse of the law was removed. When Christ came, all this bondage and burden was lifted, and both Jew and Gentile could stand at last, upright in the presence of God, and be free. Just in passing, go back to chapter 3, 13. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now the apostle has used the word crucified in chapter 2. And in chapter 5, or chapter 6, he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he speaks of the cross, and he speaks of crucifixion. Why does he say, hangeth on a tree? Now I suppose you do know, although this comes as a surprise to some of God's people, that Peter never once 
throughout the whole of his ministry, ever spoke of the cross of Christ. Do you know that? Of course, I hope you're going to be very enraged over that, and you'll rush to your Bible and read all that Peter wrote and all that he said. Yes. And if you do come across the word crucified once, don't come back at me, friends, I'm ready for you, for you'll discover it isn't the word. Not the word that Paul uses. Another word altogether. Peter never speaks of the cross of Christ, but he was talking all the time to the dispersed of Israel. And the cross didn't have the same meaning to them. But what did have a meaning was the word tree. The Old Testament law said, Cursed is everyone that dies that death. That's the signal that he's died under a curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You remember him addressing them in the Acts of the Apostles, whom you, you uh, uh, killed the Prince of Life and put him on a tree in his epistle. He said, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree all the way through. The tree. Because it's dealing with the law. But if you came to a Gentile and said, you know, Christ died on a tree without preparation, it wouldn't mean anything, would it? But if you lived in those days under the Roman power and said he was put on a cross, might would mean everything. That was the, that was the punishment with all its horror. But Christ endured both at the same time. It was the curse of a broken law that put him there. It was the sins of the pagan world that put him there. And they both combined in the one offering. I think I've told you this once, but I'll mention it again. That in the book of Esther, you get a tree, or a gallows as it's translated, to hang Mordecai on. And it's always called a tree except once, when the king himself speaks about it, and then he uses the word crucify instead. Just once in the Old Testament there. But it's the pagan king that says it, not the Jew. So there's a purpose in this. And Paul is bringing the Jew and the Gentile together in their need of one redeemer. And then he says, always says, to think. You've come out of your bondage, you come out from the worshipping of these stocks and stones. But he says, if, you, if it all it amounts to is that you're simply loading yourselves up with a whole pile of observances, days, months, times, years, I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labour in vain. So you see, it's not quite right for us to say, oh, it doesn't matter, these ceremonies and that, it suits their temperament. Well, that may be true, and there's a certain amount of charity in it, up to a point. But if it once usurps the perfect redemption which Christ has made, then it must be challenged. I could quite understand there are some types of people who are helped in their spiritual life by somebody who's dressed up in ancient-looking medieval clothes and having candles burning on an altar and whatnot. And I wouldn't go bothering about whether it's right or wrong for them. Unless I knew personally that it was usurping the completeness of their acceptance in the beloved. Then you might have to have a talk with them. But you see, that's what's happening. He said, you've only been out of your paganism for a, a brief period. You don't know much. And these have come down from Jerusalem and they've intimidated you to submit to circumcision, put yourself under this bondage of all the ceremony of the law. He says, I'm afraid of you. 
And to finish it, you'll find he repeats the same thing from another angle in Colossians. Now when you examine the two different sets of Paul's epistles, you begin to sense this, that the great antagonist in the early epistles was the legalism, the law of Moses, the Pharisee. But in the second lot of Paul's epistles, he'd gone over into the world which was not bothering about the law of Moses, but was thinking more of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and all the philosophers. And so he had to deal with it all over again in Colossians and says, verse 8, Beware lest any dead spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. Not Moses' law. After the elements of the world, translated rudiments, and not after Christ. So he's on the very same thing again. If you allow Plato or Socrates to take the place of Christ, well, he said it's all one and the same. And Moses put in the place of Christ wrongfully, all one and the same. So he says, verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So you see, there's a parallel in the arguments, and they are set out so that you can see it so. Let it be the elements of the world, days, months, times, and years, and then we come down to the bottom, the elements of the world, holy days, new moon, Sabbath, and so on. So there's a perfect pattern. He says, just as he said in, in Galatians, that they were dead to these things. So he says in Colossians, verse 20, Wherefore if you be dead with Christ, from the rudiments, that's the word elements in the margin of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? So there's the challenge. The fullness of time had come. And the fullness of time was just like the time which the Father had put in his will. When that child was now stand completely free and independent of superintendents, pedagogues, tutors, governors, elementary instructions, ABCs, and all that that word needs, he must stand out as now responsible. And the apostle writing that epistle to the Hebrews, which we read, he said, for the time you ought to be teaching others, but you are still babies. You're being fed with milk and not with meat. But he says, those who are a full age, those who are perfect, they deserve. Why? Because their senses are exercised between good and evil. So that he's used this figure more than once, that there's a time, and this is the time of God. And that time was marked by the coming into this world of his son, and the offering that his son made, and the freedom that that offering brings. And it grieved the heart of the apostle that any should have put their trust in him to receive that forgiveness, to have that justification as theirs, and then to go dabbling about with all these odds and ends, which he said, as Peter said, even our fathers couldn't tolerate and could not obey. Oh, I trust that you are listening to me, whether in this chapel or anywhere else later on. You who are in any measure rejoicing in the glorious salvation which Christ has bought at such a price. You will see to it that for no reason whatever can you be induced to go back to anything that can be compared to weak 
and beggarly elements, even though there may be specious arguments to show, say it's politic to do this and it's wise to do that and it's helpful to do the other. No. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I have been crucified unto the world and the world unto thee with all its systems, its philosophies, its religions and its elements. You say, you don't leave us very much, do you? Oh, no, friends, I don't. But what I do leave you is the Son of God. And He, He is the one that we're going to read presently, is the one in whom it was well-pleasing that all the fullness should dwell. And since the Apostle, as a result of that, you are filled to the full in Him. There's no extra religion here. There's no room for religion here if Christ fills the bill as he should and as he must. So may the Lord once more set his seal to this further examination of the word fullness and let us drink deep of this well of everlasting life and thank him that the time came and he was not behind and his promise was fulfilled both that which was made in the Garden of Eden and that which was foreshadowed by all the types that were given under the law of Moses. And now he stands alone and the shadows of God. And we find him indeed all sufficient. In fact, Colossians is going to anticipate us. Christ is all and in all to us.